A few years ago, uh, we had a little problem out the front of our house on our front lawn. Um, There was a patch of grass and it just wouldn't grow. And we tried everything. We tried um, fertilising it and top dressing it and that didn't fix it. Tried replanting it with new grass. Um, That didn't fix it. Tried watering it extra hard um, constantly. That didn't fix it. Um, One day I was out the front digging with a um, hoe out there, trying to turn the dirt over, thinking that might fix it. And I discovered about this far under the grass was basically a road underneath the grass. There was used to be a road where our front lawn is, and most of it was ripped up, but this little particular bit was staying. And so, of course, the grass, the roots couldn't go down, the, the water wouldn't stay there, and the grass just kept dying. So anyway, we had a, um, a, a bobcat in for some other work, and we got him to rip up all the road base and turn it all over, and, now, and then the grass grew beautifully for a year or two till we ripped it up and we've replaced it with a native garden. But anyway, the, the point is the first step to fixing something is knowing what the problem is, isn't it? Whether it's your car, whether it's your health, whether it's your plumbing, it's no use actually trying to fix something and, unless you actually know what the cause of the problem is. And in fact, when you go to the doctor, that's the first thing they do, isn't it? They diagnose the problem. Now, in today's passage we are going to the heart of what is really the biggest problem in life. And as you look around the world, there is something wrong with this world. And people have spent lots and lots of time and energy and money trying to fix it, trying to fix up life. But Genesis shows us what is the cause of the problem in the world and then how to fix it. Last week we saw that Eve was deceived by the devil into wanting to be like God Satan, you'll remember, in the form of a snake, um, deceived Eve, told her lies, made her doubt God's goodness to the point where she disobeyed God. She ate the fruit, she gave some to the man, he ate the fruit, and they sinned. And what we see this morning in Genesis 3 is we see the beginnings of the devastation that last week's disobedience brings not just to Adam and Eve, but to the entire world. We're starting at verse 7, we're going all the way through to verse 24, and like I already said, it's in two halves. Each half shows us a different consequence of human sin. The first half of the passage deals with the immediate result of sin. The second half deals with the ongoing judgment of God on sin in the world. The turning point is where God announces his judgment for sin to Adam and Eve, but before that, they've already been affected by their sin. Before God even announces his judgment, Adam and Eve have already been impacted. So the first half of the passage deals with those personal results of sin when we all sin, guilt and shame and being separated from God. They're things that we experience every time we sin. The second half is about the brokenness of the world. God's judgment on humanity, God's curse on the world that frustrates our relationships, frustrates our work, whether we're sinning or not, God's general judgment on the world. So turn with me to verse 7, and we'll look firstly at the immediate results of disobeying God. Chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings 
for themselves. Here we start to see the effects of sin. Adam and Eve now have new feelings that they've never experienced before. Two terrible feelings of guilt and of shame. They realise that they're naked. Not that there's anything wrong with being naked, but I think it's the thoughts that now accompany it. And in verse 8, they hear God coming, walking in the garden, and now they are terrified. And they try to hide from God, as if you can hide from God behind a tree. It's like a two-year-old shutting their eyes and saying, you can't see me. It's so pathetic, but that's what they're doing. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Well, hiding doesn't work. And so guilt and shame now turns to blame. God confronts Adam about why he ate from the tree. And Adam points the finger to Eve. And you'll notice Eve points the finger to the snake. No one wants to take um, responsibility for the consequences of their actions. Verse 11. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now back in chapter 2, Adam was just head over heel. Uh, She was bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now she's the woman you put here with me, she did it. And now the woman does the same thing, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Shame, guilt, trying to hide from God and now blaming other people for their sin. Now that's exactly what we're like, isn't it? We have more in common with this man and this woman in Genesis 3 than we had in common with the man and woman a chapter ago, who were naked and felt no shame. That's because we are more like this man and woman. We have all sinned. We all know what it's like to feel guilty. We've all tried to blame someone else for what we've done. We've all tried to hide from God or ignore God or not face up to God for things that we've done because we're afraid of what he'll think of us. Shame and guilt and fear. That is the first big problem of life, and it's because of our sin. It's the direct consequences of our sin, and it affects our relationship with God, and it affects our relationships with each other. But thankfully, God offers to fix this. God can take away our guilt and our shame, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you already know that. Trusting Jesus means your guilt is gone, taken by Jesus who became guilty for us. Trusting Jesus means your sin is gone because our sin was put on him when he died on the cross. In fact, the Psalms say, as far as east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us. But I think we see the smallest hint of that right here in in Genesis 3, down in verse 21. It might seem a small thing but but it's not 
At the end of this passage, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife Eve and clothed them. Now, they've already tried to cover over their shame and their nakedness with fig leaves, but obviously it hasn't worked. God now, in his mercy, makes garments of skin, animal skin, to clothe them. I think perhaps even here in Genesis 3, way back here, God wants to cover their shame. He's showing them some kind of mercy. And this is the first shedding of blood in the Bible, isn't it? God kills an animal to make these coverings for Adam and Eve's sin. I don't think that's a coincidence. In Leviticus, God will shed the blood of an animal on the Day of Atonement to cover over the sin of the nation of Israel. See, sin brings guilt, and guilt can't be taken away without the taking of life. And if you're here this morning, and if you have not yet had your sin and guilt taken away, if you're still guilty, if you're still scared of God, then I need to point you to Jesus. Because there is only one place to have your sin taken away, and that's Jesus. Hebrews says, Christ, that's Jesus, was sacrificed, that's killed, once, that's when he died on the cross, to take away the sins of many people. That's you if you choose to follow Jesus. If you come to Jesus, he can completely take away your guilt and shame. And that can happen right now. But that's half the problem, isn't it? Because even as a follower of Jesus, even after you've had your guilt and shame washed away, after you've had a fresh start, life's not perfect, is it? Far from it. And that's because in the second half of Genesis 3, God announces his judgment on the world for sin. First he announces it to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man. And for each of the three, the punishment is fitting. It's appropriate. It's fair according to what the sin was. What did the snake do wrong? He rose up, a created being, he spoke to Eve, he deceived her. And so the punishment will be that he will be forever crawling in the dust, forever an enemy of the woman. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's the punishment on the serpent. Although right there at the end of verse 15, there's a little sign, I think, again, of God's grace. When it says between your offspring and hers, it's not singular. I mean, it's singular between one of your offspring. And between one of hers, it's not plural. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus refers back to a similar passage in uh, talking about Abraham making that distinction between singular and plural, kind of telling us we need to read that carefully. It's not saying that all women will be scared of snakes. It's saying that one day an offspring of the woman, someone born from a woman, will crush the serpent's head. And we know, of course, that the serpent is Satan. Now, as we read on in the Bible, who is it that's the offspring of the woman who crushes the serpent? Well, the serpent crusher is Jesus. That's a long way down the track, though. An offspring of Eve who defeats Satan, but in so doing, himself is struck by Satan in his death. That's all here in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. Uh, Verse 16, we go on to read about the woman's punishment. Pain in childbearing, 
and competition with her husband. We saw a bit about that last week, didn't we? Eve led Adam into sin, and as judgment, he will now seek to rule over her with his strength. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This strikes at the core of what the woman is made for, doesn't it? When a woman is lonely, or when a woman can't have children, or when a woman is not loved by her husband, it's painful. It feels like a failure. It's because Eve, it's because of her sin, it's because God's judgment on women. Life will now be marked by pain. The pain of childbearing. The pain of infertility. The pain of miscarriages. The pain of marriage. The pain of having a husband rule over you rather than love you. The pain of a husband who at times treats you like his enemy or doesn't appreciate you or love you. The life of a woman will be marked by pain at her deepest relationships. And for men, it's similar, isn't it? God's judgment strikes at the heart of what the man was made for in verse 17. The man was made to work the garden. And the judgment is that the man's work forever will be frustrated. Look at verse 17. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, it's the same word that was used of the woman, pain. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Men, you can be forever searching for the perfect job, It does not exist. And if you want to read a a whole book of the Bible about that, read Ecclesiastes. It shows us how the curse of the ground has spread to every area of work. Your work is frustrated. It will never totally bring you the satisfaction that it was designed to bring. That's why a man feels a failure or inadequate or demoralised about work. When you're not successful with your work, or when you lose your job, or when it feels like at work you're just going nowhere, or you get treated unfairly, of course you'll feel like a failure. You can't do the very thing that you're made for. It's God's curse. It's meant to make you feel a failure. You are a failure. Even the most successful businessman's life is marked by failure and brokenness. It's meant to make you realise there's something wrong with this world. It's God's curse. Now, you don't even have to be a Christian to work that out, do you? If you look around this world, it does not make sense. Work is frustrated. Relationships are frustrated. Pleasure is frustrated. Justice and fairness, they're frustrated. There's something dreadfully wrong with the world. And we can't fix it. Money can't fix it. Wars can't fix it. Science can't fix it. 
Medicine can't fix it. Counselling can't fix it. Being a Christian doesn't even fix it because it's not going to be fixed in this creation. See, rather than fix it, God has prepared a new creation, a new Garden of Eden, a new heaven and earth ready for us, ready for people who follow Jesus. The old one is not going to be fixed. It's going to be gone, destroyed. And there's a new perfect one. In verse 22 and 24 of Genesis, God banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden forever. There'll be no going back to that Garden of Eden. The beautiful garden that God planted just for humans, it's now empty. We can't enjoy it. It's guarded shut by angels. And in God's plan for rescuing humans, even Jesus doesn't fix this world. He fixes us ready for the new creation. I want to end our time this morning together by looking at Revelation 21. Turn with me there now. We've been looking at the first few chapters of the Bible. Let's turn to the last couple of chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21. This is a picture of the new creation. Genesis 3 shows us where we've come from. Revelation 21 shows us where we're heading. Revelation 21, verse 1. This is John having a vision of the new heaven and new earth. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be there with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. How do you describe a new creation to people like us who've only ever lived in a world of sin? The way God describes it is in terms of an undoing of everything that is wrong with this world. Whatever is wrong with this world, it's not like that. Verse 1, no more first heaven and first earth. No more broken world of sin. Verse 3, God will dwell with his people in a way that hasn't happened since Genesis 3, the garden. Verse 4, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things has gone. Turn over one chapter to Revelation 22. It gets even better. better. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. 
no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. No curse. There'll be no curse in the new creation because there'll be no sin, no night, no darkness, no evil. Verse 2, we will be able to eat from the tree of life again. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden so that they could not eat from the tree of life. Here it is, in the new creation, free to be eaten from. And did you notice there's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil? There's not even the possibility of sin in the new creation. God's plan is not to fix up this world. God's plan through Jesus is to fix us up ready for the new creation by getting rid of our sin. And that's what Jesus died to do. If you're here this morning and you're not ready for the new creation, you need to come to Jesus and ask him to wash you and prepare you to be part of this. I want to finish by reading how that will happen. In 1 Corinthians 15, don't look it up, I'm just going to read it. It describes what will happen to followers of Jesus when the new creation arrives. It talks about the transforming of our bodies, ready for the new creation. This is what it says. The first man, Adam, was of the dust of the earth. The second man, that's Jesus, was from heaven. And as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven so also are those who are from heaven. That's followers of Jesus. Just have we, as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, in other words, just as we're all flesh and blood like Adam, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. In other words, we'll be made like Jesus. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Ready for the new creation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father God, we are sick of this creation and its brokenness and the pain that it causes. Father, we're sick of living in these bodies of sin and living in this cursed world. And Father, we groan, longing for the new creation to come. We look forward to that day when Jesus will return. We pray that it would come soon. Father, thank you that the very best things about this world that we've seen from Genesis, the beauty of your creation, the wonder of it, your power, they'll all be in the new creation. Father, thank you for the worst things about this world, that they won't be there. Thank you that our sin won't be there. Thank you that the pain for women in childbearing and relationships and the frustration of men's work won't be there. Father, we pray that until that day you'd help us to keep trusting in Jesus. And we look forward to the day when we're changed. We pray that it would come soon. We give all the glory to you. Amen.